Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. We're in Valencia for the final round of the MotoGP season. And uh, joining me is David Emmett and Neil Morrison. And once again, guys, we're going to talk about the end of what's been a really thrilling season. We came to Valencia and really this has been probably the biggest race that I can remember for a long time here. Been coming to Valencia for seven years and I've never seen the circuit like this. It's been absolutely packed. The town's been busy. The crowd's been buzzing. The end of season, probably not quite the end of season that some people wanted, but uh, certainly still ended with a lot of excitement. Yeah, I mean, well, echoes of 2015, really. Um, uh, although without the bitter recriminations of 2015, fortunately, although perhaps we might have got a little bit of bitter recriminations after the fact rather than before the fact. Um, yeah, it was just a fantastic event, fantastic day, uh, fantastic and fascinating race. Absolutely high on tension, uh, and then and a kind of explosion of drama that, uh, that erupted about two thirds of the way in, and uh, yeah, totally fitting, totally unfitting with what's already happened this year. Yeah, and when you look at this weekend as a whole, we've all been coming to Valencia for years, but Neil, you mentioned just off air before we got started, just that the spectacle of this weekend really was unlike anything we've seen before. Obviously, we had Marquez. We're, we're waiting to see if he'd win his sixth championship. You've got in the other corner, Davi, the popular champion in a lot of people's eyes. I think everyone wanted to see Davi pick up that championship. Just didn't quite work out. But everyone left here with a real sense that once again, MotoGP really is probably the healthiest racing series on the planet. Yeah, it's definitely up there, and it's hard to hard to argue with that. You know, you had five guys fighting for the win pretty much the whole way through the race. Um, you know, we had the one moment which was basically showing to the whole world just how much of a genius Mark is with his miraculous save at Turn 1. I mean, he saved some incredible moments in his time, but that really is another level. And, um, I mean, yeah, we saw different strategies, different things going on. Um, yeah, it was, it was really something special. David, that save from Marquez in the closing stages, he's got one hand on the championship at this stage, and we just see that front end slide all the way through turn one, manages somehow to pick it up. I was talking to a couple of riders afterwards, and each of them said, Mark is the only rider that can make that save because he thinks he can make that save. Every other rider, they're bailing off. They're getting their legs out of the way, and they're just trying to avoid getting hurt. I mean, yeah, the most interesting thing to me was the fact that it actually happened, because what Marquez does is he finds where the limit is during the uh, during practice, uh, and then makes sure he doesn't fall off during the race. But I think it was a sign of... Um, it was a sign of nerves. I think the, even though I mean Mark came in with 20, a 21 point lead, um, all he had to do was ride around in uh, and, and you know finish a top 10 would have been good enough. 11th place would have been good enough. Uh, but I think actually finishing 11th would have been much more difficult for Mark uh, Marcus than finishing sort of you know, sort of top five. Um, so yeah, it was it was actually unusual for him to have to make such a massive save. Uh, during the race rather than uh, rather than during practice. Neil, we saw him roll the dice as part of his celebrations, but it really was a case of pushing it just past that point, really where he should have been with you know, only five, six laps left in the season. He seemed to be under a bit of pressure from Zarco as well. Yeah, exactly. And you could see from as early as the third lap, he uh, waved Zarco by. He clearly played a lot of uh, scenarios through in his head, you know, in the week coming up to the race, also through the weekend. Uh, I'm sure his mental state wasn't helped so much on Saturday night by knowing Zarco and Ian Oney, two of the, the most aggressive guys in the Phillip Island race, were starting alongside him. Um, and yeah, it shows that even the absolute best, the very best in the world, um, you know, can show signs of nervous are, are human. And, uh, you know, Mark said that he, I think he passed Zarco the, the corner before, at the final corner. 
the whole way along the straight was thinking, right, I need to make a break now. Because he had the pace, I think, you know, through free practice and qualifying, we saw that he had the pace to, to win that race. But, um, you know, Zarko is a, an aggressive rider. He's one of those guys that will try and return a move almost as soon as it's happened. Yeah, which, is the, which is the, the, the correct strategy. It's why Rossi is so strong, Marcus is so, is so strong. Uh, it's why you see Zarko d doing exactly the same thing. If someone passes you, you have to strike back immediately. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and he just had to let his brakes off just a little bit. Find he was going in too hot, and then the next thing he knows, he's, he's skating along on his left knee. Smoke pouring off the front wheel. And Neil, you saw the full sequence of photos as well on Sunday night. There was one journalist managed to catch the whole sequence and he was going around pretty much trying to sell it to anyone and everyone. Yeah, he doesn't need to work for another six or seven months, I don't <laughs> think. He can go to Barbados for Christmas and just, you know, uh, have room service every night. Um, yeah, it's ridiculous. Looking at that sequence, you do wonder how many riders in history could have saved that. Yeah. And from maybe Freddie Spencer, I mean, you know, his, his ability with the front tire was pretty remarkable. Yeah. I don't I can't really think of any other riders that would have been able to do that because it was it was an astonishing feat. You mentioned riders in history there as well and we did have a couple of riders on the current grid. Alicia Spagaro came out and said that he thought that right now you could rake Mark Mark as the greatest rider of all time as well on the basis of what he's been able to do since moving up to the Premier class. He's only lost one championship since he came up. Yeah, I mean, for a 24-year-old, no one, it's unprecedented. No 24-year-old no has ever won six world titles and four Premier Class titles. I think Hillwood was maybe 25 when he won yeah. his fourth 500 Grand Prix Championship. So, yeah, it's, it's unparalleled what, he, what he's doing. David, it's unparalleled what he's doing. And when you look at uh, this weekend as a whole, and indeed we're in the middle of the end of season test now on, on Monday we saw the news that Livio Super was stepping aside basically saying that he'd achieved everything he could try and achieve with Honda and now he's looking for a new challenge uh, yeah, I mean, it's a great moment for, for Livio Supo to lead because he's got nothing nothing left to prove, really. You know, he bought, uh, uh, he won championships with Casey Stoner and Ducati, which uh, during the Honda press conference, which they put on for him, he was kind enough to point out as his greatest achievement. Um, then he bought uh, Stoner to Honda, won the world championship with, uh, with, uh, with Stoner on a Honda, um, uh, signed Mark Marquez, won a championship with Marquez, uh, oh, well, won four championships with Marcus. Really, there's not a lot, not a lot left for him to prove. Um, uh, and of course, the other thing is, he was he worked so closely with Shuhei Nakamoto. Nakamoto retired earlier this year, so there was not really a lot of point for Supo to uh, um, uh, to, to stay on. <laughs> It's going to be interesting to see what happens to Honda in the future and how Supo's departure plays through, um, on, uh, how it affects HRC and how it affects that relationship because the relationship with Marquez and Marquez's crew and, and HRC, it's, uh, I mean, it's good, but it's quite delicate and it needs to be managed perfectly well because without, without Mark, Honda are in quite a lot of trouble. Yeah, and you mentioned there that Supo has nothing left to prove really in this paddock. But Neil, when we look at Ducati as a whole for the season in the last three or four years, they've still got a lot to prove. They've been able to show that they can fix the wrongs of that bike. If you think back to 2014, there was a lot wrong with that package, but they've gradually been able to progress and this year winning six races. With Davi, it's really been probably the, the crowning achievement so far, but they still haven't won that championship. They haven't. They've come a long way and they got close this year. Um, maybe on way up the entire season the Ducati might have been the best bike across the year uh, it's difficult to say um, maybe it had the widest 
operating window. Yeah, uh, I think uh, I, I think p- perhaps the best way to put it is that the Ducati had the fewest weaknesses. It wasn't strong. Uh, it wasn't the strongest anywhere, but it was always, uh, a, with a few exceptions, most notably places like Phillip Island, places with really, really. Uh, long fast corners which is still the weakness of the bike that's the one thing which it couldn't do it couldn't do but it, it dealt with the wet very well it dealt with low grip it dealt with high grip um, it was always uh, sort of competitive and that's that really allowed um, uh, Dovi to be uh, competitive towards the end I mean when we went to the launch in uh, Bologna in uh, January or February I can't remember yeah, January um, you know they were saying our goal, our goal, and our, our objective is uh, uh, is the championship uh, and, and to be winning races. No one really took it seriously, but we certainly didn't expect to be uh, here. You know, coming to the last race, uh, expecting to um, expecting to win. But uh, to me, one of the things that um, uh, it's not so much the strength of the uh, of the Ducati, but perhaps the weakness of the Yamaha, because there were the, you know the, the the Yamahas were missing in action for most of the season. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, at the start of the year, we had it down that they were the most kind of well-rounded and well-balanced bike, but eventually it all just got away from them. Um, yeah, but back to what you were originally asking there, Steve, I mean, I think, yeah, obviously Gigi Delinia has spelled it out that the ultimate win, or the ultimate aim is to win the World Championship, the Riders' World Championship, um, but this is just another step and they've definitely progressed. It's, it's a continuation of, the, of this project from when Delinia joined at the start of 2014, I think it was. Um, Six races, arguably the best bike on the grid. You know, next year it just all it's going to take is for those turning issues to be solved and to see whether Jorge and Dovi can, you know, get even closer. We'll be diving into it a little bit more later on about the team orders issue that Ducati had this weekend. But David, when you look at uh, Lorenzo through this weekend, through the last few rounds, he's made a big step forward. Yeah, I mean, basically since I think Bruno, when uh, uh, when he finally got the winglets, the Bruno test, when he finally got the winglets on the uh, uh, on the bike, um, that made a huge difference to him. Basically, it meant the front wheel was touching the ground again. He could feel the front all the way through corners, and uh, uh, and he could carry corner speed. Uh, and apart from that, it's been uh, you know a, a slow a slow process of adapting to to the UK. But he's uh, he's probably about 95 90 98 percent there by the time we you know this time next year uh, certainly by the time we rock up at the first day uh, first race at qatar he should be adapted and then we'll get to see um how how good he really is and you see if you look at the, the second half of the year as a whole now not that the season's finished we can do that really it was only mategi and you know he was competitive at Mategi through free practice and qualifying but the race he wasn't yeah. it was really only Philip Island that Lorenzo wasn't in any way competitive yeah. or challenged in the front runner so all of those other eight races he was in some way you know in the running yeah and, exactly and, and he was leading he was leading or he, he showed potential in some sessions where you thought oh he could be in the podium maybe it didn't all come together there were some great rides in there as well I mean what he did in Aragon with that soft rear tyre to finish to lead most of that race and to finish third was exceptional yeah. um, so yeah there's there's definitely signs that Jorge can bring that forward and uh, translate that into a, maybe a, a championship challenge in 2018. Exceptional is one of the words you use there, Neil, and this really has been an exceptional year for MotoGP. When you look at uh, front to back on this grid, it really does magnify it when guys like Lorenzo and even what we've seen from the Yamahas as well this season, when they're not quite at their 100%, if they're at their 99%, 
you can be very far off in this field right now. You can be down in 10th, 11th place very quickly, whereas in the past, he had that little bit more of a margin as well. And that's obviously been one of the big issues for Lorenzo trying to adapt to that Ducati as well this year, just to try and find that right balance. Yeah, oh, it was what I found interesting was in the championship uh, press conference that Mark Marquez said, you know, it used to be four or five years ago, if you were a, a bad day was you finished fourth. Now a bad day is sixth, eighth. Tenth, um, it gets a lot more difficult to string a uh, to string a championship together when uh, you know when you're losing that many that many more points. Yeah, and it's it's one thing that we're seeing in the World Superbike Paddock at the moment with these new regulations is that uh, they're trying to close up the field and try and bring a bit more of what we've seen in MotoGP. And one thing that they've all said, anytime you talk to any of the riders or teams on or off the record, the one thing that an awful lot of them have said is Dorna's done a really good job of giving that financial input in MotoGP. And that's clearly been one of the big influences the last couple of years in getting the field as competitive it is, as it is. Yeah, but it, it, it's easy to do that. If you've got a good product, it's a, it's a virtuous circle, so if you've got uh, a good product, then it's easy to sell. Uh, you can ask TV companies for a lot of money, and that money then goes into the teams. Uh, and um, World Superbikes find itself at sort of at the opposite end, where um, you know Johnny is just stinking the place up by by beating everyone easily. Uh, so people aren't watching, and so the the the, the financial value of it, uh, the financial value of the the series is lower, and so it's much more difficult to actually put series uh, put put money into the series. And only once they've got a more attractive product can they actually start putting money into the series. Again. Yeah, and this weekend we really did see just how viable MotoGP was. If you look at the press room this weekend, anyone that's listening at home, if you look at the press conferences through the weekend, you could see just how full the media center was with hundreds of journalists here, lots of photographers, TV, and it really was a very busy media center, busy paddock, and nearly a six-figure six crowd here as well. Yeah, I think it was 110,000 was the final attendance on Sunday. And 220, which I think is a, it was a full house because the, the circuit were holding a raffle, uh, some kind of contest to win the last, uh, the last ticket, uh, last available ticket. Okay, right. Yeah. Well, there you go. Uh, so yeah, an absolute like you know full attendance. If you look at if you've ever been to Valencia, you'll know that there's just one continuous grandstand that goes from the last corner all the way around to the first corner. Um, and yeah, the place was absolutely pumping for I would say from Saturday really the whole yeah. way through to, to Sunday evening. So um, yeah, great great way to end the season. It was a great season, and I think we have to point out that you know Dovi was absolutely magnificent, and he put in such an inspired campaign. And yes, what you said, Steve, he was what many people hoped to win. But I think we can't deny that Marquez deserved this World Championship. I think from the second half of the season, from the summer break, he was the best rider in the world, and it was it was well deserved. You know, and maybe in that second half of the year, he's been riding as well as he's ever done. Yeah, and he also he won it with three DNFs, which hasn't been done since Doohan. And you know the, the quality, the, the level of competition that Doohan was up against uh, was nothing close to uh, nothing close to what Mark had to uh, had to beat. So uh, yeah, truly, truly remarkable, a truly remarkable achievement. Yeah, and we'll focus on Mark and his season as a whole once we come back from this break. Hey guys, Jensen here. Just a quick message to make sure you're following the show on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash paddockpasspodcast. All right, now back to the show.
So when we look at the 2017 season, guys, and you look at Mark Marquez's championship year, it's been very different compared to some of his other titles, whether you're looking at 125, Moto2, or indeed each of his MotoGP championships. David, you just commented that he's the first uh, rider since McDoon to win a championship with having three DNFs, and it really has been a year of ups and downs for Marquez, but also for Honda as well. They clearly don't have the most competitive package out there but when that package has Mark Marquez on it it's a very different proposition yeah and to a certain extent that's the problem the problem with with having a rider uh, you know a stoner-esque rider is that um, uh, your really really fast rider actually masks a lot of problems Um, uh, Mark Mark is clearly He's clearly the best rider in the world. Uh, but, but even though, even then, Pedrosa still managed to win uh, two races, including including the last race uh, uh, here at Valencia. As many podiums as Dovi. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. But I mean, to me, I think the way that uh, uh, the way that Marcus won the championship was through consistency, because he was never. Um, I think he didn't have any. Uh, he never finished lower than sixth. So even what, even on a bad day, he was still scoring lots and lots of points, uh, or or he was not finished. Yeah, you have to say the turning point of that was the sixth place in Mugello because he had just crashed in Le Mans. Uh, they arrived at Mugello. It was a really hot afternoon. The Honda were absolutely nowhere then and Mark did a really 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 mature thing and I think he was at the front towards the start of the race lots of people passed him you thought okay is he going to get flustered if he has another crash that's it like that's curtains for his title yeah. because Vinales was such a strong strong shape at that time and uh, he basically sat behind Alvaro Bautista at a great pace and Alvaro carried him more or less to the back of the lead group or close enough to the back of the lead group and he took that sixth place and then from there it just snowballed and yeah. uh, as you said David you know it was it was having the presence of mind to accept that that wasn't going to be his day better days would be coming sooner or further down the line and um, yeah I think that is also a sign of uh, his maturity his continued maturity his experience and you know it's only going to get stronger from here yeah. how much of a role do we think strategy plays? because one of the things that um, Marquez has been so strong in is flag to flag races and uh, when the grip is really really mixed so we, we've had a lot of races where the track was, wasn't really in, in any great shape there was either a lot of water or there was sort of mixed water there was flag to flag races and he's just almost unbeatable in flag to flag races because he can manage that sort of those sort of low levels of, of grip uh, extremely well so perhaps the conditions came to him a little bit as well yeah, or, it, well, or you could just say he's just incredibly adept at all conditions. <laughs> you know, because, I mean, let's face it, like any, you know, I remember saying at one point during the second part of the season, you know, if it's wet, okay, that's the Emma has out of the running. Yeah. Okay. If it's flag to flag, Ducati haven't always done the best things in those situations. You could give any situation to Marquez and you know he's going to be strong, which, yeah. is, which is a sign of his strength. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, so maybe it's not a case of the conditions coming to him. It's just that he's prepared and he is brilliant. Yeah. No yeah. Yeah. What. Yeah. Yeah, and it's definitely one of those situations where you mentioned flag-to-flag races, David. Mark's always making his change to slicks two laps before everyone else, and he fools everyone else into making those changes as well. I think Saxon Ring, he ran off the track and everything, and he was still able to set the lap times to fool, last year, yeah, was still able to fool people into making those changes, and that's always been pretty much his strong strong suit and his trump card. And when you look at uh, Honda with all the difficulties that they've had, David, you mentioned that uh, having a rider like Marquez, having a rider like Stoner, it allows you to mask those issues. But it looks like Honda, they're going to have to make some big changes now with Supo gone. And uh, it'll be interesting to see just how that shakes up within the HRC. Yeah, I mean, they've already made uh, changes to make the bike a little bit easier to 
to ride with the big bag engine this year. Um, uh, I was just downstairs in, in pit lane, and uh, they've again they've got a new engine, um, new exhausts, lots and lots of lots of sort of small changes, which are um, um, uh, which all aimed at making the bike that little bit easier to cope with, that little bit easier easier to ride. Um, because they also, you know, they've, they've, they've put Franco Morbidelli on the bike, and, and you know, Morbidelli absolutely ran away with the uh, with the Moto Two Championship. Uh, and if he comes in and fails, then there's something badly wrong. Neil, you've been a big fan of Frankel for a few years now. I remember back in 2015, whenever we were talking to the VDS team about who they were going to put on their Moto Two bike last year, all of us came up to the conclusion that they should put Franco on the bike. Yeah. And whenever they did make that decision. There was some scepticism within the paddock whether or not he could step up to the plate, really. But this year, he's really shown exactly what he can do. Yeah, yeah. Frank has had a great season. He's been very, very strong. Um, yeah, he's, he was the class of the field, really, in, uh, in Moto2, if you look at the whole season. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see what Franco can do because I think he has the talent to be to make it MotoGP, to be competitive. But we've seen that that bike take some time to get used to to you know if you have to ride it in the way that Marquez does you look at Crutchlow or Miller it took them one maybe two years to really understand how to extract the maximum from it and that is to ride it to these absolute limits on the nose on the brakes and that's not quite that's not so easy uh, that's not so easy to get used to if you're crashing as much as those guys have you know your, your confidence can take a battering and, and so on so um you know, Cal, Crutchlow and, and, you know, even Mark, they've talked about the need for Honda to make the bike easier to ride for 2018. Um, and I think Frank will be a good measure of just how far they have come, you know, because if, if they can do that, then I think Franco has a, has a real shot at impressing a lot of people uh, in 2018. But, um, yeah, you, you hope that he doesn't sort of get lost in a, in a well of, of, of woe. <laughs> just looking at again we're here during the test as well so we're able to get an idea of what some riders think about bikes after they've left and we talked to Jack Miller yesterday he gave a pretty good indication of just how difficult it is to ride that Honda whenever he talked about jumping onto the Ducati for the first time yeah I mean he was been he's been specifically forbidden uh, about making comparisons between the Honda and the Ducati uh, but that didn't stop him from hinting at comparisons between the uh, the Honda and the Ducati he was what fourth fastest yesterday I fifth. think fifth fastest he was immediately quick he looked really comfortable I mean not so much this morning when he fell off uh, but um, uh, yeah I mean he, he said basically you know the, the bike felt um, the bike felt great it was fast um, and uh, he didn't really have any problem any problems turning um, and uh, what was entertaining was that uh, when he was asked about the, the, the bike being difficult to turn uh, he basically said well perhaps they should uh, the, the people who are complaining about UK being difficult to turn should try uh, try riding other bikes instead and of course, Neil, when we look at uh, the rest of this winter and then look forward to the 2018 season, it's going to be Mark that's going to have a target on his back as usual. But uh, given what we've seen this year, given how we've seen him evolve as a MotoGP rider over the last five years, it's difficult to see where that challenge really comes to, to stop him if Honda are able to solve some of the problems they're having. Yep, yeah, I would agree with that. Um, but you have to look, I think, you David, you mentioned it earlier, Yamaha were essentially missing an action for the last you know quarter of the season. You have to imagine with the expertise at their disposal, the resources at their disposal, 
and the right of talent at their disposal, they're going to come back in a quite a strong way in 2018. I mean, um, you know, in some ways, Joan Zarco was the, the star of the, the three flyaways in, in Valencia. Yeah. Um, and we've seen already at the test that he's been uh, ripping up the, uh, the timesheets. So um, I think, yeah, a challenge is going to come from there. Ducati... If they can make it, uh, if they can make headway with this turning issue, I mean, you'd have to say both of their riders will be in the hunt. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's already, uh, you know, that's before you take into account Pedroza, Crutchlow on his good days, you know, can, you know, uh, upset the apple cart. So yeah, and who knows what Miller can do on the Ducati? Sure. Um, uh, who knows what the uh, what, what the Aprilia turns into? Uh, the Suzuki, Suzuki complaining about a lack of power all year. You know, they've got a new engine which has got a lot more power. That should fix that issue. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to look forward to in 2018. Yeah, the future's bright. And could be orange as well with KTM. They've made a lot of strides this season too. And when we come back after the break, we'll look at Ducati for this weekend in Valencia and the team orders fiasco that we saw in the final race of the 2017 season. David Emmett here. Just a quick reminder, if you're listening to this show on iTunes, please remember to leave us a review and rate us as it really helps other fans find the show. Thanks a lot. Bye. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast and uh, David and Neil, we're going to move on to the next topic and it's probably been the hottest topic of conversation from this weekend, mapping eight, I mean, sorry, uh, team orders within Ducati and uh, we've seen once again this weekend that, uh, David, you're not a fan of F1 as everyone knows, team orders, they can be a bit shit. Wait, you don't like F1? Yeah, yeah, I don't think I've mentioned it before. I don't like to talk about it. Uh, but yeah, uh, F1 is rubbish. Um, not because of the team orders, but uh, for, for different reasons. But I mean, really, the whole thing was just appallingly handled, really. Everyone knew that there were going to be team orders. Um, everyone knew that... Um, everyone knew that Ducati needed... Dovichio or uh, Lorenzo to get out of Dovichioso's way to help uh, to help Dovichioso however he, however he could. Um, uh, everyone knew that um, uh, Jorge Lorenzo is a, the kind of rider who is not going to. Well, it's like everywhere. All, all riders, to a certain extent, are sort of psychopaths. They only really care about winning um, for themselves because that's why they put in all the hard work. Uh, put in all the hard work. Um, so it just—it it, it was always going to be a difficult. Um, it was always going to be a difficult topic, and the way it was handled was particularly poor. Yeah, racing's always the ultimate team sport, Neil. But uh, it all comes down to one rider in terms of what fans are looking for, and for that one rider, it all comes down to everyone working with them. And uh, we saw really this began the Ducati. They tried to rally around and and not criticise Lorenzo after the race, but it was pretty clear that uh, there were going to be some harsh words behind closed doors. I would say so. Yeah, I mean the the message coming out of Ducati was extremely consistent on Sunday night. Everyone was saying the same thing. Dovi wasn't uh, offended or hurt or angered by Lorenzo's actions in the race. Um, also, people, uh, you know. It wasn't as if Davizioso was markedly faster. There was parts of the circuit that he was a bit quicker, I think, in T1. Um, but then there were other parts where Lorenzo was faster. So I don't think, personally, I don't think it would have made really any difference at all if Lorenzo had moved aside early into the race. Yeah, I mean, it made absolutely no difference to the outcome. 
Yeah. Um, it just looked terrible. It, yeah, it looked it looked terrible. And it's just the thing is that when you hear the importance of of maintaining a, a kind of calm uh, and good working environment within a garage. Yeah, you think that what Jorge did is not going to foster that, you know? Um, and I think I think for him, he's, he's kind of, you know, he's shot himself in the foot a bit because if you look at next year, you know, is Dolby going to be inclined to help him if he has to? <clears throat> I'm not sure. Probably yeah. because Dolby's like, you know... He's, he well, Dolby's like a, a gentleman. Yeah. Dolby is a gentleman. In fact, I heard... That because uh, I, uh, after the fact, you hear all sorts of rumours coming out from from... You know, in inside the garage, um, somebody said, somebody inside Ducati said, um, it's a good job that uh, Dolby is a gentleman um, uh, when he was discussing the uh, the discussing the situation. Also, um, uh, the when we were we went into the Ducati hospitality to for for, for the media debriefs and we were waiting for Lorenzo and Dora Dovichos to turn up. One of the uh, uh, Paolo Ciabatti came in and he found David uh, Paolo Ciabatti is the the, the the head of Ducati Racing uh, their racing project and they found the head of the MotoGP team Davide Tardozzi and um, uh, Ciabatti was um, uh, very vociferously briefing uh, Tardozzi on exactly what the company line was and everyone stuck to that company line afterwards um, that um, you know Lorenzo was supposed to be helping um, he thought he was doing the best thing by getting uh, getting Domicioso a bit of a toe up to the up to the front group but um, uh, they what I heard was that the reception of uh, Lorenzo got when he actually arrived in the garage was very different to the public line uh, offered yeah and you could see during the race I rewatched the race on Monday evening you could see whenever uh, Lorenzo was receiving those dashboard messages the, the dashboard communication the suggested mapping um message Whenever he wasn't obeying it, there was an occasional shot of Gigi Delina sitting in the Ducati box, and there was the occasional moment of exasperation of you know raising his hand and motioning, "What is he doing?" And uh, you know, you take the whole sort of situation with Lorenzo into consideration. He is the the most expensive rider in the world. Ducati are paying a fortune for him, and you know, although he, there was progress, he didn't have a great season. Yeah. And really, in that kind of situation, he should be showing that he is a team player and I'm willing to play ball to do the best for Ducati. Um, but, you know, as you said, he's a, he's a rider and he, he did feel all weekend that he had the pace to win that race or at least challenge the front of it. Yeah, well, he learned about being a team player from his former teammate Valentino Rossi, of course. Um, uh, yeah, I mean... Obviously, they were they were expecting him to uh, ex expecting him to help out, but there was, I think, for as long as uh, Lorenzo believed that he had a chance of winning the race, there was no chance that he was going to uh, he was he was never going to actually move aside. But actually, the, the whole messaging thing, the, you know, the suggested suggested mapping mapping eight, it's such a stupid message. They should just put their, put on drop one position, make it obvious that they're applying team orders because now they look bad because they're trying to hide it, team orders. Orders, which are very obviously team orders then their rider very obviously disobeys their team orders um, uh, and they try and come out with a with a, with a peculiar message afterwards it's, it's just the, the whole thing do, doesn't reflect well on either Ducati or Lorenzo and Lorenzo is completely 
selfish and just wants the best result for himself because again before the weekend it was all yeah of course or it'd be, be before Valencia it was yeah of course I'm prepared to prepared to help Dolly but only once we get to Valencia and then it's Valencia yeah I'll help him if he can win the race and if something happens to Mark and if 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 uh, the, all the, it all became very became very conditional indeed yeah absolutely um, yeah I think Matt Oxley wrote on, on Monday, you know, if, if you want your mechanics, your technicians to go that extra mile to, to sit up past, you know, when they should be really at home in the hotel, but you want them to sit up and, you know, rebuild your bike or, you know, apply the settings that you want, you need to have those mechanics completely behind you 100%. And you would have to say that after what Lorenzo did, won't be quite like that uh, within within Bologna. Yeah, exactly. He's definitely he will definitely evaluate some people. Yeah, but the one thing about that is he's still Jorge Lorenzo. He's still at the end of the day a better rider than Dovi, and he's still going to be their most likely championship challenger for Ducati. If you look at this season, you'd have to say that uh, this is Dovi's one chance to win a Premier Class title. And some riders, when they get that chance, they take it. Dovi didn't, and now the pressure's really on him to prove that in 2018 he can beat Lorenzo again because if he can then Lorenzo rightly people will look back at this as being a key weekend but if Davi can't beat him they'll look back at this and say well Lorenzo's just a better rider the, the, the pressure is going to be on both of them next year because Lorenzo absolutely has to win a race next year um, or win a race he ha- a- absolutely has to win races next year he has to outperform Davi um, and if he challenge can. for the championship yeah. Yeah, absolutely yeah, yeah I mean if he's uh, if he's struggling to, to if he's struggling to battle for sort of fourth or fifth, then uh, yeah, the, 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 then really, then we can really say that, uh, that, that this experiment has been a failure. One thing that's also been a bit of a failure this year, you'd have to say Yamaha. When you look at the season as a whole, the team really did lose their way in the middle of part of the campaign and indeed finishing this season using the 2016 bike for Valentino Rossi and Maverick Vinales here at the Valencia Grand Prix I think we're all pretty much in shock about how the season's gone for Yamaha I think 12 months ago when we sat here Vinales jumped onto the bike for the first time dominated winter testing we all expected that when we saw Vinales win the opening two races of the year that he was just going to keep that rolling but that crash in Coda and then a few other things through the season really have knocked his confidence and uh, he's he's clearly been feeling the pressure through the second half of the year yeah it's it really hasn't gone to come to plan at all for Maverick or for Yamaha and I think Valencia was maybe even a new nadir in what was already a pretty bad season um, you know Mategi was just awful but you know you could say that well it was wet and you know and it's not a good wet weather bike this year um, but here we had dry conditions all all weekends Maverick was regularly struggling to get within a second of the lap time he did here in testing a year ago um, and you know even by his own standards this year which are fairly high standards uh, he wore a, th- a face of thunder uh, throughout you know Friday and Saturday and, and really did not look best pleased and you know it, it seemed that Yamaha were just like well we've got nothing to lose with the 17 bike uh, or we've got nothing to lose by fitting the 16 chassis what Zarco has been running more or less we've got nothing to lose by fitting the factory bikes with that so let's do it and uh you know, it was a bit of a crazy idea. The guys had, I think, morning warm-up to 
you know, get a race set up for the race. Um, Vinales crashed two laps into morning yeah, warm-up. Two and a half and laps. Two and a half laps, so, you know, barely had any information. Well, next to no information. Um, yeah, and it was, it was pretty lousy. It was a pretty lousy showing from, uh, from Yamaha. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Maverick basically turned up saying, um, uh, turned up to the to, to Valencia saying, I can't wait to get this year behind me. Um, uh, yesterday on Tuesday, he was, uh, you know, he was all smiles again because it, it wasn't 2017 any longer. Um, yeah, I mean, they, 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 they tried to go in a particular direction with the chassis and it just didn't work. Um, it, it just, yeah, it, it just completely worked, uh, failed for them. What I found was, the, I suppose, the strangest thing is that they didn't go back early because Valentino Rossi has spent the entire uh, season telling us that that the 2017 engine won't fit in the 2016 chassis and yet that's exactly what they did on uh, on Sunday at Valencia um, they could have gone back earlier but it would have been an admission of uh, an admission of defeat and the thing is Joan Zarco has just got stronger and stronger through through the last part of the season yeah and it's a big thing for a Japanese factory to do that, really. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's very rare to see a Japanese factory take a step back at if, like that. If you do see a Japanese factory, it is Yamaha who will do that, because Yamaha are by far the, the most um, uh, willing, to, willing to take that kind of risk. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, yeah, with, uh, I mean, with Zarco, it's going to be really interesting in the coming days to see... We saw him straight out off the traps on on Tuesday testing with the 17 bike. That it was saying that it was actually quite good. It suited him quite well. Um, yeah, and the other thing is with the 16 bike all year. Uh, um, last year the uh, Rossi and especially Rossi, but Rossi and Vinales when they both tried the 2016 chassis, they said, you know, it's fine, but they, but it uses the tire towards the end of the towards the end of the race, and there was nothing wrong with uh, Joan Zarco's tire at the end of, uh, of yesterday's race. Zarco has been able to manage the tyre, so there's so, there's something more to it, and I I am starting to suspect that Joan Zarco might be a little bit better than we even think he is. That he might be something something rather special indeed. Yeah, yeah, I think everything we've seen in the past month has suggested as much, um, and a lot of that seems to be down to I don't know. I've been so impressed with Zarco and the way he looks at things, the way he takes possible negatives and spins them around into a kind of a positive way of thinking that is not very conventional for motorcycle racers. Yeah. I mean, we <clears throat> yesterday on Tuesday, the first day of testing, uh, Zarco was asked repeatedly, like, did you not have some some concerns about trying this 17 chassis when you saw Maverick and, and, and Rossi struggle recently? And he said, well, look at Phillip Island. I mean, you know, yeah. they were pretty good there. He said, look, look, at, look at Aragon. Yeah, he said, look at Aragon. Rossi turns up with a broken leg, 24 days after a broken leg, finishes fifth, like five seconds behind the race winner. It's not that bad a bike. And I think, you know, what, we, what we've known or what we've learned recently is that just the 17 bike seems to have a very, very, very narrow window. And they never quite got that marriage with the tires that is so crucial in, in MotoGP. They never quite worked that out because... As we know, Midland has a very small. Midland tires have a very small operating window, and in the perfect conditions, when there's grip and reasonable temperatures, it seems to be okay. But go outside that, and you're you're nowhere. Yeah, it, it seems to be. It seems to be that, that Yamaha never managed to get their narrow operating window to line up perfectly with the uh, uh, with Michelin's operating window, and so you know they were in. They they ended up 
really uh, really floundering and that's what certainly Ducati did an awful lot better uh, and and even Honda I mean you could to, to an extent you could predict who was whether whether Yamaha were going to do well or not just knowing the level of uh, the level of the grip they were they were about to race on yeah yeah absolutely um, so yes so it's, it's going to be very interesting even just to see the role that Yamaha gives Arco in 2018 whether he's going to be like a kind of crutch slow Petrucci figure with a third factory bike. Yeah, but Yamaha don't do that. Yamaha have never done that historically. Even uh, people on factory contracts like Ben Spees and uh, Paul Espargaro, um, they basically had the satellite bike, and that was it. And, uh, and that was it. And occasionally they would get sort of, they would get an update, but that would be your lot. Yeah, and given some of the rumours that we've heard around the Valencia paddock this weekend about Zarco potentially moving to Red Bull, or sorry, to KTM in uh, 2019, you'd also have to look at it and think, are Yamaha going to invest in his future for the 2018 season if he does indeed move straight away? Yeah, but Yamaha are caught between a rock and a hard place because um, uh, they really, I mean, Zarco, Zarco deserves undoubtedly to be in the factory team. Um, but the trouble is, the, the factory team is already full. They've got their young star for the future um, in Maverick Vinales. They've got their their icon, their legend, and, and, and a rider who's still, you know, he's still winning races. He's still getting podiums in Valentino in Valentino Rossi. You, you're not going to sack either of them just to make room for uh, for Joan Zarco. And so they're almost doomed to lose him unless they made him, uh, you know, gave him full factory support in Tech Three. And they've never done that because the other thing is Moby Star pay um, uh, Movistar and Monster pay uh, Yamaha an awful lot of money to um, have their bikes on the podium at the end of the weekend they don't Movistar doesn't pay uh, Yamaha whatever it is five six seven million a year uh, to have uh, Joan Zarco beat them yeah exactly yeah yeah so it's gonna be interesting to see what role Johan has I mean let's I mean traditionally there's always it's been the factory bikes are for that year and then the tech three bikes yeah. are from the year before i don't think we're going to see zarko on a 17 bike you know well who knows i mean you know with this tech with this test he's so happy on the 2017 bike but yeah i i don't think we it's not going to be i agree it's not going to be a normal year yeah yeah i can see bits you know of the 18 bike being passed on to him at sapang and you you have to imagine that Yamaha are using him as a test rider here. You have to imagine that's going to continue in the Sepang because he's shown that he's fast enough and uh, you imagine his feedback will be um, worthy enough. Um, yeah, I think Yamaha might break with the norm. Yeah, I think also um, uh, it's a sign of the confusion of where Yamaha are that um, um, uh, Maverick and Valentino have gone in completely different directions and they've ended up not, know, not really knowing what they're doing. And so they've got Zarco. Zarco's on the bike. Zarco's going really, really quick. Uh, they just want him, in, him almost as a you know like a, clear, a, a control in a, in a in a clinical trial or, or, or a scientific test, just so they've got some some sort of a guideline because they uh, they really don't seem to be sure of the direction they're going and they need to get sort of you know pick a direction and follow it yeah yeah exactly and when you look at honda uh, at the test you have pedroza marquez and crutchlow all on the same bike and yep. you know there seems to be a an idea of, of a clear yep. direction yamaha at the moment are at sixes and sevens you know they're testing 16 frames with 18 engine and the 17 bike with you know different parts from the 16 and you yep. know and a whisper uh, made its way around the media center yesterday that the factory guys 
in 2017, I think we knew about maybe five different chassis changes. Someone said that it's more like double that number yeah. uh, through the course of the year. So that shows just how how they were trying to evolve it, how desperate they were. You can't criticize them for a lack of effort, but yeah, just and, when and, the direction's not there. Yeah, yeah. For, 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 for comparison, uh, KTM had 18 different iterations of their, uh, of their chassis up until Aragon, but KTM are a brand new, this was their first year. It was that they've, ne- they've got no MotoGP experience. So for Yamaha to go through so many different changes in their chassis, then they really are, um, yeah, yeah, they really are in, 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 in a hard place. And of course, Yamaha, they'll be back testing at Sepang later this month as well for a few days with potentially three or four riders, depending on Jonas Folger's condition as well. So that'll be a key test for them what, as what well. What I heard was that Folger is, is not going to be fit. He's not going to be fit for uh, uh, for the Sepang test. So, yeah, it, again, it means they lose more important input, which makes it a little bit more difficult again. Yeah, and uh, we'll be down at the Hareth test next week to see what kind of solutions everyone else can come up with. But it does look like there won't be too many massive changes for anyone between now and the Hareth test. They're just going to try and save everything for the Sepang test at the start of next year. But when we look, uh, when we come back after this break, we'll look at the winners and losers from the weekend and we'll all pick who had the, who are the good weekends and who are the bad weekends. Jensen here again. On behalf of the whole Paddock Pass podcast crew, I wanted to give a quick thank you for following us this racing season. As we get ready for next year, we would love to hear some feedback from our listeners about what we're doing right and where we can improve. We're also looking for suggestions on how we can expand the show, whether we should include interviews with riders and teams, and also which championships we should include in our coverage. So if you have a minute, please leave us your thoughts at paddockpasspodcast at gmail.com. On behalf of David, Neil, Steve, and myself, again, thank you for listening to the Paddock Pass Podcast. And do please send us your ideas and suggestions for the 2018 season. That email address, again, is paddockpasspodcast at gmail.com. All right, now back to the show. And welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. And just as we conclude a look at the Valencia Grand Prix, we're going to look at who's been the big winners and losers from this weekend. And Neil, who are you picking as your big winner? Well, strange that we haven't actually mentioned the, the winner of the race, or barely mentioned him, uh, Danny Pedrosa. Um, strong from pretty much second practice, um, showed a formidable pace throughout Saturday and showed a real coolness of head uh, in a last lap fight with Johan Zarco um, Pedroza pretty much did what he had to do didn't get Marquez's way at any stage rode very intelligently and whenever Marquez had his moment to turn one Pedroza knew that that was his race to win and uh, and did so very well so uh, I think Danny um, second win of the year um, considering how, how bad I guess his 2016 season was as a whole and how it ended on such a bad note you know Pedroza you can look back and say he finished fourth in the championship he won two races, had quite a few podiums. Um, it's been a positive season as a whole. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and I think you know he rode really well. Yeah, absolutely. Sunday. It's a good shout, and and, and Pedrosa was absolutely class. Uh, you know, he was a class act on uh, uh, during the race. And I think you rode it perfectly. I think you made uh, mention of it in your race report, David. He, he now surpasses the great Eddie Lawson in terms of uh, premier class wins. Yeah. And now it's just an astonishing feat, really, for yeah, a guy I, that uh, is often looked over, uh, you know, as one of the 
one of the leading names in kind of history. I mean, okay, he doesn't have that championship, but to, to be ahead of guys like Schwanz, Rainey, Lawson, um, from that golden age of, uh, yeah. of 500cc racing. Yeah, I mean, it, it always annoys me when people say, um, you know, they, why are they signing Pedrosa again? Can't they find anyone uh, better to put on the bike? And the, the, the answer to that question is very, very simple. No, they can't find anyone better to put on that bike because Pedrosa is one of the absolute best riders, uh, uh, one of the four or five best riders in the world simple as that yeah and indeed he's one of the best lightweight riders of all time as well and uh, David that might tell you nicely with who you think was your big winner of the weekend yeah I mean my big winner of the weekend was uh, Juan Mir who only finished second in the Moto uh, in the Moto3 race but it was the way that he finished second um, he looked to I mean it, he was escaping with um, um, uh, Rodrigo and with uh, uh, Jorge Martin and Jorge Martin was um had an outstanding race, really, really strong race. But you know, as long as you've got Juan Mir in your um, uh, uh, sort of on your tail, then you then you're in trouble. Rodrigo had a moment, um, uh, forced um, had a big crash and forced uh, Juan Mir off uh, off track. He dropped all the way back to I think 19th or 20th place, something like that. Uh, fought his way through back past people and was never passed back again. Uh, again really quite remarkable especially on a Moto3 bike um, uh, ended up coming second he was uh, over the what 14 or 15 laps or something he was uh, something like four seconds faster than, than Martin during those and he had to do lots he had to he had to overtake sort of 18 uh, 18 people to get there so for me I mean, it's a shame that Juan Mir misses out on um, uh, on the on equaling Valentino Rossi's record for the most wins in the, uh, in the lightweight class. Uh, but um, uh, he really showed why he is an exceptional uh, an exceptional exceptional talent and certainly not to take away from Jorge Martin. Martin deserved that win as well. He rode just absolutely superbly but um, uh, yeah what Juan Mir did was something a bit special it, was a, it reminded me a little bit of Brad Binder at Jerez uh, was it last year yeah and Valencia last year as well for Binder here coming through the pack and I, I was tempted to use Jorge Martin as my big winner just for finally <laughs> picking up that first career Grand Prix victory but uh, for me, given what we've already talked about, guys, I think I'm going to give it to Johan Zarco just to be able to show once again that he can go into the winter with renewed confidence. And uh, really, he's had his ups and downs through the season. He hasn't had it all his own way. But when you look at uh, this final few rounds of the championship, he really was able to stamp his authority on more than just being the rookie of the year, the top independent rider, but a real challenger as well in the class. So for me, I'd still put Zarco as my big winner from the weekend. But Neil, when we look at the... Weekend as a whole, who was the big loser for you? Uh, I don't think I'm being particularly original in selecting this, but I think Yamaha, uh, we have to look at the, the factory Yamaha team, the movie star Yamaha team, at sixes and sevens, all at sea, ditching their 2017 chassis on qualifying after such a lackluster showing through free practice. It was actually surprising to see Rossi qualify as high as seventh because he had been nowhere before that. Vinales was often outside the top 15, they were nowhere and um, reverting to the 16 chassis while displaying a degree of pragmatism also showed also underlined just how much in the in the doo-doo they were in yeah. and uh, you know it'll be it's going to take 
yeah, it's going to take a lot for this to come back together. Um, and it's it, it basically just capped off a, a terrible year that started so well. Yeah, I mean that's a, that's definitely a fair shout. I'm going to go with a different uh, with a different uh, team and factory, and I'm going to go with Ducati just for the way that they handled the uh, team order issues. Um, uh, they, I mean, everything about it was handled poorly. Um, uh, they didn't really have a, 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 a lot of choice in the matter, but I mean, you know. Did, Pretending they're not having team orders when they were, and then making it really obvious that they actually had team orders, um, uh, using messages which were sort of ambiguous instead of just being being very very clear about exactly what it was, not telling people, but uh, you know, it, even beforehand being ambiguous about what they were going to do, and then uh, pretending afterwards that every everything is sort of, uh, sort of sweetness and light. I think that was it was just. It was just really poorly handled. But did you expect them to come out and lambast Lorenzo after the rest? Like, really? Like, in today's kind of, you know, micromanaged, you know, media situation, would you, were you expecting anything different? No, but you might have expected them to come out and say that it was an unfortunate decision. I mean, you know, <laughs> we understand his position, but we think he made the wrong decision. Um, and they, I mean, also they should have been clear from the, they should have been clear from the start. They should have been clear from the start of the weekend. This is what we want Lorenzo to do. And that was, there was just basically the whole weekend was a, was was ambiguity that it was amb ambiguous about you know how they felt about team orders about how they felt about Lorenzo and they should have just manned up strike for uh, right from the beginning because the other thing is if they'd have been open about it and uh, uh, you know before the weekend and said right we expect Lorenzo to get out of Dovizioso's way then there would have been a lot more public pressure on Lorenzo to actually do it whereas now it, it looks like everyone is trying to weasel out of their responsibility uh, uh, Ducati Lorenzo um, everyone um, except Dovizioso except Dovizioso and Dovizioso is a man of great honour exempt exempt from your criticism yeah exactly he might be exempt from criticism and a man of great honour but he's still my big loser for the weekend <laughs> oh, I, oh goodness me I think it's it's, it's nothing about uh, Dovi his performance how he handled himself it's that um, I struggle to see him as a Premier Class champion in the future I think this was his one chance and I think as good a rider as Davi is, and I've always put him in that second tier of riders behind the likes of a Marquez, a Rossi, a Lorenzo. He's, he's had his chance now, in my eyes, to win that Premier Class title. And it's going to take a big ask for him to get back into that position again. And I'd liken Davi to what we saw in 2006 with Nicky Hayden. Nicky had his chance to win it, and he took his chance, and he never got that chance again. And I'm not taking anything away from Nicky. Nicky deserved that title that year, but he only won two races. Dovi won six. Yeah. And yeah. Dovi went toe to toe with Marquez on yeah. several occasions and beat him. You know, I think that is a sign that I agree with, with you. I think in the past, I would never have rated Dovi among the absolute elite level riders, but something this year showed yeah. that, that he's almost, he's he's obviously riding as, as well as he ever has yeah there's a difference between the 2016 Dobby and the 2017 Dobby yeah. and the 2017 Dobby is a is is an exponentially better rider than the than the 2016 rider is he as good as Marcus no he's never going to be as good as Marcus is he as good as, as Rossi uh, uh, Lorenzo um, um, uh, Maverick no oh. but um, he can beat them and he can beat them consistently um, he needs things to go his way but again what I love about this era of racing is we are in an era of racing where intelligence counts for something again for actually being able to manage a race being able to think about a race being able to uh, uh 
that you, you sort of measure out your race, decide when to push, when to uh, uh, when not to push, and you can have different strategies. And Dovi has been an absolute master of managing the uh, managing a weekend, managing the um, uh, uh, managing a race. Um, but I, I agree absolutely. He is. Um, uh, he had a chance to win a championship and he didn't win a championship and you don't get very many chances to win a championship especially not uh, against a certain Mr Marquez when they come along you have to take them yeah and that's the great thing about MotoGP right now is we go into the winter break I think we can all agree that we expect Davi to win races next year we expect him to be a consistent podium man but we don't know exactly what's going to happen. We've gone into the Valencia test and the winter in the past pretty sure of what we're going to see in the 2018 season but uh, for next year, we just really don't have those crystal clear answers just yet. And that's why uh, MotoGP keeps delivering. And uh, just to bring to a conclusion our show, and once again, just the 2017 season's come to a close. So once again, just a thanks to everyone at home listening and uh, sending in their feedback, sending in their questions throughout the season. And uh, if you have any comments that you'd like to make about the show, just make sure to tweet at Paddock Pass Pod. You now have 280 characters, so you have plenty more space to be able to comment on what you've listened to through the season and if you have any questions. And you can do the same on their Facebook page at Paddock Pass Podcast. And uh, we look forward to entertaining you through the winter with a couple of extra shows and also on to the 2018 season. So, David, thanks for joining us. Neil, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks, Steve. And thanks very much to everyone for listening at home. It's They're very attractive to look. Yeah. To be quite honest, David. Yeah, exactly. It's no, it's, it's sex. It yeah. I'll tell you what, people that say that you can't see the chemistry between hosts <laughs> on a radio show, I'll tell you what, when they listen to your two voices, they'll know exactly what's going on. <laughs> the look between your eyes, the look of a man that sort of said, Baby. I've settled. <laughs> For what I can get. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Better a bird in the hand, eh? That's right.